payoff this morning of having a small army of women away retreating and, and camping is that we get all the elementary age kids in here with us today. So it's good to see all of you in here if you're not normally in the arena. And I actually want to start with a question for you. So think about, if you are in grades one through five, think about what your favorite, absolute favorite movie is. Okay, think about that for a second. Favorite movie. Now on the count of three, I'm gonna have all of you shout that out to me, okay? So, got it? Your fav absolute favorite movie? Shout it out on the count of three. One, two, three. I don't know if you even heard one of them. <laughs> No, I heard, I heard a couple. That was good. Good shouting. Now, um, for the brave ones among you, I'm going to ask one or two of you to raise your hand and tell me why that's your favorite movie. Who wants to volunteer? Why is that your favorite movie? What's the movie? Say it again. Okay. And why is it your favorite movie, Cinderella? Oh, favorite princess. That is absolutely good reason for that to be a good movie. Uh, anyone else? Yes. Favorite movie? Um, Avatar. Avatar. Wow. Nice. And why? Why is it your favorite? Yes. I mean, who's ever seen an Avatar? And no, we don't. We don't see creatures like that every day. So it's really cool to watch. Absolutely. You know, it's it's a really good thing to have favorite movies. So I'm glad you do. And it's really good to know how to understand them and how to interact with them. Um, maybe some of you that are in first through fifth grade will be making movies one day and we can feature them in our movie series here at Warehouse. I would like that. Um, whatever the case, so it's good to, to know about movies, to understand them, to interact with them, but not just movies, music and books and ideas and anything that we call culture. Uh, and that's what I'm going to be talking about today. I'm going to talk about this thing called culture and, and how Christians in the church should be interacting with culture and shouldn't be interacting with culture. Uh, but before I go on, just let me explain what I mean. So by engaged culture, here's what I mean. I mean being aware of and understanding and interacting with and even appreciating and enjoying the creative things that people make uh, and the things that are expressed through what they make. So what people believe and what people value. And I'm going to be talking about that today because as Christy mentioned, we're in the middle of this series called I Guess That's Where You Lost Me. And it's about these disconnections that particularly David Kinnaman uh, in his book, You Lost Me, has identified th these six main disconnections of people who have given up on church or haven't checked out church in the first place. So we're taking his cue from, from his research. And the first disconnection that he mentions is overprotection, this idea of being fenced in, particularly from engaging with culture. And when people have reached that moment of, I guess that's where you lost me when it comes to, to this, it's when, it's when they sense that it's not okay to engage with culture, that it's, it's not okay to enter into the, the full breadth of, of what people make and how they express what they believe. They, people feel fenced in. And it's coming up against attitudes like, you know, secular music is bad, Christian music is good. That's what I should listen to. Um, pop culture is godless, so we're going to create kind of our own culture. We're going to create our own movies and our own music and our own books and all of that. Well, that usually happens when Christians are afraid. I'm just going to say it the way it is. 
uh, afraid of the, the corrupting influence of culture, afraid of the, the confusing nature of it. Sometimes it's hard to understand. Um, and, and often the moral wishy-washiness of these things. The key word there is afraid. That's where overprotection comes from. Afraid of interacting and so disengaging based on being, being afraid. Um, because it's simply safer not to engage. It's safer not to be aware and engage and to stay within that protective subculture. Um, I'm going to use an image today, a couple images. Um, and two of them come from this book called Chameleon Christianity that I, re I really like. It's by uh, Dick Kyes. He's a director of Labrie Fellowship in Massachusetts. And in this little book, he, he talks about that overprotective stance toward engaging with culture, and he calls it musk ox Christianity. That's right, musk oxen. Now we're going to talk about those today. They're, these are really cool animals. They're buffalo-like animals that live up in the Arctic. And they have this very particular defense mechanism, this, this system against uh, protecting them against predators and danger. So if musk oxen sense predators coming or, or danger from one direction, they'll form uh, one big line, like an army, kind of wait there for it. But if the danger is coming from every direction, like a wolf herd or something, a wolf pack, wolves don't go in herds, um, a wolf pack, then, then they'll circle up like this with their butts in the middle and their, their horns sticking out, and they'll corral their young in the middle. They'll, they'll put all the young and the sick in the middle to protect them. So this is their defense mechanism. And in his book, Milling Christianity, uh, Dick Kai says this is, this is a good image for what happens in the church when we become overprotective. Huddled together, you know, corralling the young in the middle with our horns out, ready, always in this defensive posture. Uh, and when I hear Christians you know, boycotting movies, I think oh, they're being musk oxen. And I don't believe that's what we are called to as the church, as Christians, in interacting with culture, that kind of uh, posture or attitude. Because it might be safe and it might feel right, um, but it's not best. I'm going to talk more about that in a second. Uh, one more thing about this, though. It's ironic. This can actually be very dangerous as well, this, this defense system, uh, because it can make them particularly vulnerable to some kinds of predators. Against wolves, it's a great defense, but grizzly bears have gotten really smart. Grizzly bears have figured out how to get inside. So they leap over the musk oxen to get in the middle and then just start wreaking havoc. So when it works, it works really well. When it doesn't work, it's bad. Uh, and especially if one of them gets isolated outside of that safe circle, uh, then they're doomed if predators are attacking. Again, I think that's a fitting image for the danger of this holy huddle mentality within the church. Um, you could call it the danger of safety. There are dangers of being too safe. And Kinnaman talks about this in his book, You Lost Me, particularly in terms of young people. He said, if you're too safe, if you're too huddled together, then it can lead to young people seeking alternative thrills or like binging once they get outside that holy huddle. It can lead to... Um, failure to develop a worldview that's big enough to really understand everything that's out there and to engage with it. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if then you're alone without support when you really want to engage, then that's not good either. Uh, I don't want that for my kids uh, or for anybody. I don't, I don't want that for this community. So let's not be that. Let's not be an overprotective huddle. Let's not be musk oxen, okay? 
And I think I should also say, for those of you who have been frustrated by maybe experiencing a musk ox church or community like that, um, I hope you're encouraged today that that's not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, there's a much better vision. And yes, Christians have sometimes done that when it comes to interacting with culture, but um, we're going to look at a better way today. I hope it entices you. But I need to talk about the opposite danger first. So if, if it's not good to take the musk ox approach, it's also not good to be a chameleon. Chameleons are so cool. Chameleons are crazy creatures. So they got this skin that can change color based on their environment. So if temperatures change, going from warm to cool, they can, they can adjust to, to um, get more sun or whatever and warm up. Um, they change color based on predators. Um, but maybe one of the ways they were most familiar with, they change color uh, based on their environment to blend in a little bit. So that, yep, those are Ray-Bans. And yes, this is a commercial. <laughs> um, just showing what can happen when a chameleon interacts um, with his environment. We should just watch this for a second because this is so cool. <laughs> this is way better than me talking. Uh, point is, whatever the chameleon encounters, um, I don't know the science behind it, but there are so many pigments, um, pigment in his skin that he can just, you know, adapt himself to whatever um, he encounters. And, ah, oh, that's so cool. I want to be a chameleon. Um, okay, I hate to break it to you. That is slightly digitally mastered. Uh, <laughs> um, chameleons do do that. They just, they tend not to change that fast. But I think I've made the point. They're cool. Um, <laughs> This is the opposite danger, though. Um, blending in, right, to the way that people think. When, when you interact, engage with culture, blending in to, to the way people think and live and create things. We should probably take that down. It's super distracting, isn't it? You're like, <laughs> way more interesting than what I'm saying. Um, it represents this opposite danger that if you blend in like that every time you engage, then dialogue can't really happen because there's not two distinct positions to even talk about. Um, healthy conflict doesn't happen because differences are just smoothed out and, and they disappear. So being a chameleon when it comes to engaging culture is a, more about assimilating and becoming like, right, instead of remaining distinct and really engaging, about blending in rather than interacting while remaining distinct. So, Christians shouldn't be protective musk oxen, and we shouldn't be blend-in chameleons. There's got to be a better way. And bear with me on this. This is no one, no one else's dumb idea except mine. I, I think individual Christians in the church as a whole should be honeybees. Honeybees because we should be out there pollinating culture with all of our ideas and action and the things we make while at the same time enjoying life within this, this beautiful social colony uh, that produces its own culture, its own honey that people flock to because it's just so good. That makes sense? Don't be a musk ox. Don't be a chameleon. Be a honeybee. If you're in first through fifth grade, challenge you uh, to do a word count as I go through this talk. Count how many times I say musk ox. Count how many times I say chameleon and count how many times I say honeybee. Uh, well, you can do that no matter your age, I guess, to keep you <laughs> attuned here. And if you really want to challenge, count how many times I say culture. That will do it. Because what I want to do now is I want to look at what that might mean 
through the lens of a particular passage in the Bible in Acts 17. So the book of Acts as a whole, it's, it's in the Newer Testament of the Bible, and it's the story of how the church came to be, the birth of the church and its growth. The, the church grew like wildfire in the first century, spreading all throughout the first century world. And guys like the Apostle Paul would travel around, helping these churches get off the ground, encouraging their leaders, training them. And as they traveled around, sometimes they would spend time in these different cities. So Paul is doing this with some traveling companions. He gets separated from those companions and ends up in Athens and decides to wait for his companions there. Well, Athens, in modern-day Greece, same, same city, was the cultural center of the entire Greco-Roman Empire. So if there's anywhere in the Bible that we would hope to see how someone like the Apostle Paul engages with, with culture, it's right here. So we're going to pay attention to this, and hopefully Paul's going to show us what it means to be honeybees rather than musk oxen or chameleons. So Acts 17, we're going to start in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, his traveling companions in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. All right, first, it's important to see where Paul is going when he's in Athens. He's going to the synagogue, this religious center, and dialoguing with people there. And he's going to the marketplace and dialoguing with whoever was there. Um, first, just to, on that word reasons, that's how they translate it. The, the actual word is dialogamai, uh, where we get our word dialogue, I think that's a better description of what Paul is actually doing, this back-and-forthness, this interacting, this live uh, discussion with people. He's not just making an argument. He's having conversations. And he's doing that in religious centers, but really anywhere. People were willing to have this kind of dialogue. Now, when we hear the word marketplace, I don't know about you, I think shopping mall or something. Uh, and so you might start to imagine, oh, what store is Paul going to go to first? Uh, of course, we know it would be the Apple Store, right? <laughs> like, uh, okay, maybe not. Uh, who cares? Paul wasn't in a shopping mall. He was in the Agora. Uh, the Agora was the city center of Athens. Um, every city had this. It's where everyone kind of went to do their stuff. So artists were there creating things. Business people were there doing transactions. Um, philosophers were there talking about ideas. The media was there spreading the news because uh, we didn't, you know, print wasn't really happening, uh, internet wasn't around, and so if we wanted to spread ideas, you had to shout it out in the marketplace. Um, and Paul was there because that's where people were, and that's where you talked about ideas, and that's where you created things. So he goes where it's where, where it's most happening, where culture is being created, and he dives in right there. And so we know Paul is not being a muskox; he's not staying in his little cloistered comfortable circles, and remaining untainted from the world and safe. And you know, he's out there. He's in the marketplace. He's interacting. Uh, and we'll learn as we keep reading, he's not going to be a chameleon either because he's out there, but he's not blending in. He, he's connecting to the ways that people think and what they're creating, but he's, he's not going to capitulate to that or, or blend in to, to the way of doing things. Uh, one more point on that little... Uh, intro passage before we move on. I think it's good to also see what Paul is feeling as he enters that agora. Um, it says in verse 16 that Paul was greatly distressed to see a city full of idols. Uh, 
It's a word that doesn't really, or a phrase that doesn't really translate well either, because when it says greatly distressed, it doesn't mean that Paul is just angry, that people believe other things, or that they're creating these, um, you know, anti-Christianity um, things. He's both distressed and full of compassion. That's what this, this emotion is. Um, he's full of compassion because he sees people who, who've devoted their lives to things that are, are going to lead to a dead end or are not going to ultimately satisfy them. Um, and he's distressed because um, he believes those things are false. Uh, they twist the truth. So it's both of these things together. Um, and Tim Keller, who's the pastor of Redeemer Church in New York City, um, he has a really good point in one of his sermons where he says, when it comes to interacting with people who don't believe what you do, you know, engaging in culture, truth and tears belong together. Uh, here's what he means by that. He says, if you're all truth and no tears, you're not going to truly engage because you're all just about getting the truth out, like the truth and not really listening, not really engaging. You're just going to shout the truth from the street corner like heralds did. Um, but if you're all tears and no truth, then you're going to identify with people so much, kind of enter into that dialogue that you might even forget what you believe um, and, and just enter in there. So in other words, all distress and truth and no compassion and you're a muskox. All compassion and no distress, you're a chameleon. So these things really belong together. I think Keller's right. And if they're, if they're together, then you're ready to engage and to transform and to make culture like honeybees. So let's see how he does that. Let's see how Paul engages here in Acts 17. In verse 18, we read that a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. All right, so here's what's going on. Paul is engaging the most popular thinkers of the day here in the most happening place of the day. And I don't have time to go into detail what exactly they believe and how that leads to their, their different forms of life. Because uh, I want to focus on more how Paul is engaging here, not really uh, what he's saying. Because uh, I think that's going to show us this method for how to engage with culture differently, um, or as honeybees rather than musk oxen or chameleons. So you'll notice that as Paul begins to share and interact with these people, they thought it was interesting enough that they want to know more. Like, wow, that's, that's kind of weird, but we're interested. So keep talking. You know, we, we want to interact with you because it's intriguing. And I think this is important because if Christians are faithfully engaging in every sphere of life and in culture, that should be the reaction. You know, not, not totally um, rejecting, but that's weird, but I want to know more because of however you're saying that or or how you're connecting with me, you make me want to hear more. And that's what they did. They, they invited Paul to speak in this Areopagus, this court that had the authority to decide on, on religious and, and cultural matters. And the philosophers used this court to, for their debates. So they bring him into this, and uh, he just launches in. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, 
people of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, and I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing that you worship. I'm going to proclaim that to you. Notice what Paul does first. He, he establishes a point of contact uh, and, and commends the people he's talking to. He's saying, I see you're religious. You've got this uh, desire to honor the, the sense of, of the vine in your life. Um, it's fascinating that you have this um, altar to an unknown God. Notice that when I was walking around. And I want to talk more about that. So he doesn't come in to talk about his ideas. He first understands and connect, connects with their ideas and their way of life and uses that as a springboard. Um, in fact, we'll notice that he's creating this point of contact to the extent that he, he has studied this stuff. He has read the philosophers. He has uh, reflected on the art. Um, and and he, he commends what he can and, and builds on those connections in order to talk about his beliefs and, and the biblical story in a way that builds on the point of contact that he's already made. So you'll notice, as, as we read the next section, um, as he explains Christianity, Paul is not going to be referencing particular Bible verses. Um, he, he's going to do that by quoting from their own philosophers and poets, kind of bringing that in, and then interpreting all of that with the biblical perspective. It's fascinating. Um, you see how he does it, Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and, and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, this image made by human design or skill. I think this is really cool. Is in verse 28 where we see the, the single quotes. Uh, first, Paul is quoting from this Cretan philosopher, Epimenides, and then he's quoting from uh, a, a poet, a Stoic poet, Eratus, this scholar and poet who were really popular. People knew them. Um, I don't know what the equivalent would be, but kind of household names, cultural names. And he quotes them in order to help them see, look, I can affirm this. Uh, there's traces of God's truth in here. It's traces of God's beauty. Uh, all throughout your literature, all throughout your art. Um, and look, Paul says, you believe that God is near. He is. In fact, he's closer than you think. He is, he's trying to draw you to himself. He's trying to connect to you. Um, and I think you sense that because you know that humans have this, this dignity that's greater than other animals. Um, we're created to know God. Um, and I can see through your literature and your art that you long for that. But you don't really know what that means. Um, and the truth is, Paul goes on to say, you can't limit your idea of God to idols that you make. He's way bigger than that. The true God created and sustains everything, and all your art points to this God, but it can't contain him. That's my summary of <laughs> what he's saying. What he's doing is he's engaging people on their own turf and with their own language 
and using um, observations from their culture with this deep desire for them to know the true God. Um, all of that is motivating Paul's dialogue, patient dialogue. Um, we only get snippets of it here. It's probably hours that he's, he's dialoguing with them and helping them see these connections. But even before that, Paul took great care to study this stuff. He studied their culture. He was, he was out there looking at their art. He knew their philosophers. That took a long time and a lot of intentionality, and that got him ready to engage their thoughts and their way of life with the gospel. There's this Christian scholar, contemporary uh, 20th century scholar, Francis Schaeffer, who, who has this great point about engaging with people. Because we can't just talk about engaging culture because it's really about engaging people. People are the ones who make things and consume them, so let's not forget that. He said if he has an hour together with someone that doesn't believe what he does, he's going to spend the first 55 minutes asking questions and listening, and he's going to spend five minutes talking about the Christian story. I think this is what Paul's doing. I don't know how long he spent preparing for this dialogue, maybe 55 hours of, of study, uh, looking at that art, understanding their philosophy, talking with people, and had his five hours of opportunity where he was invited to give a case for Christianity and how it connects to what they believe. Now, I think that the musk ox way is to spend zero minutes listening and 60 minutes talking about Christianity. And the chameleon way is to spend 60 minutes listening and zero minutes talking. There's a middle way, uh, and I think the honeybee way that, that Paul is, is showing us is this probably, you know, the majority of the time listening and learning and asking questions and then waiting for a right opportunity to say something that really connects. <clears throat> so showing genuine interest, commending traces of God's truth in culture while not affirming to the point of blending in. That's the middle way I think Paul is showing us. Unlike Musk, Oxen, Paul isn't afraid of engaging every single nook and cranny of culture. Everything. It's all game. And you can always find traces of God's truth and beauty. Uh, but unlike chameleons, Paul isn't afraid of, of being clear about what he really believes. Uh, not totally assimilating in, he remains distinct and is able to say something. In fact, in the last section of Acts 17, um, we're not going to read the whole thing, but Paul basically says, look, you're morally accountable to God. Um, God is going to judge us through this person named Jesus, and we know that because God raised him from the dead. Boom. <laughs> he's not afraid of, of saying very clearly what he believes, but he's already established a point of contact. So if he hadn't done that, you might imagine people just writing that off, like resurrection of Jesus, what the? Uh, but no, people were intrigued. Like, okay, tell me more. Again, we see it again at the end of this interaction. They're still saying, tell me more. And in fact, it says, well, some did mock. It's good to recognize that, and that will always be the case if you are not a chameleon. Some will mock. Others were intrigued, and others believed on the spot. In fact, one prominent member of the Areopagus, one of these philosophers, like, it clicked, and he believed. Became a supporter of the church in Athens, uh, I love this. I love this model. I think it's right. If you want to engage culture like a honeybee, you've got to be involved where the culture is already flowering 
in order to preserve it and interact with it and recognize what's be beautiful in it. Um, and we need to be involved where it's, where it's withering so we can revive it and be involved as, as transformers of that culture. And not only that, the reason why I like this honeybee imagery is we should be making our own as well. But not to kind of enjoy it in our little huddles, but making, making books and movies and, and TV shows and musicals, whatever, that will really benefit everybody. That everybody, no matter what they believe, will recognize this is good art. This is really good. I, I want to watch that again. I want to read that again. Uh, like, it's this sweet and nutritious honey that we're giving people. And not in the sense of we're, we're like, oh, all sweet and flowery and don't want to deal with the harshness of reality. as No. It's like honey in terms of what people really crave and want and need. I probably spent too much time kind of researching Christianity and bees this week. So I'm kind of fascinated by this. And I guess it's not just me that's fascinated by bees. I found that the early church theologian John Chrysostom, who is a major influence on John Calvin, if you know that name, he once said that uh, the bees are more honored than any other animal, not because bees labor, but because bees labor for others. That's exactly right. That's how we should be engaging culture as a church, doing it for others. That's what the church should be doing. With that vision, then, I want to end with a, a couple questions, just so you can keep reflecting on this, maybe discussing this topic with friends, as couples, families. And I think, uh, I hope, wherever you are on the spectrum of, of faith, you'll find something that you can sink your teeth into here and, and discuss it. You know, whether you've been on the receiving end of, of experiencing church as musk ox or, or chameleon, or whether you, you need to be moved out of that, hopefully this will help. So the first thing, think about this. When it, it comes to engaging culture, where are you? Do you, do you, have, do you have those musk ox, ox tendencies or do you have chameleon tendencies? And where do you need to be challenged to risk? Do you need to risk going out of the huddle and engaging more? Or do you need to risk actually knowing what you believe, being confident about that, speaking up when you have the opportunity, letting that come through everything you do? And like I said, if you've, this, we started talking about overprotection as a disconnection, right? So if you have experienced musk ox church and that has driven you away or, or left you unsatisfied, uh, the temptation is to go the opposite extreme. So if you've, you've experienced the musk ox thing, you are going to be tempted to be a chameleon. And I would just love you to consider today and as you leave, like, is that best? Is it best? to follow that approach? How can you really find the, the joy and the challenge of this, this middle approach? Okay, second, uh, engaging culture, remember, means engaging people. You gotta remember that. And so, building on Paul's example and the wisdom of Francis Schaeffer here, I think we all should consider, uh, do you have space in your life for really discovering what people believe? and what they value. Like, do you take time for that? Do you care about people enough to create that space? Not to just kind of, you know, bulldoze through your relationships, your friendships, your neighbors, your coworkers, or whatever, um, looking for opportunities to share what you believe, 
Um, or do you really listen? Do you care enough to listen for 55 minutes and to talk for five? Do you care enough? And those conversations, if you hear about books that, that mean something or movies that are meaningful, do you read those books and watch those movies so you can really understand and, and engage and, and know what is meaningful to people? I think we're never going to engage culture well if we're not doing that. So let me just end with this, a couple observations. The deeper you enter into people's lives, rather than fencing them out, the better you will be able to love them. And the deeper we engage culture, individually, as a, as a church, without fencing ourselves in or fencing other people in, the better we'll be able to transform it. So let's enter more deeply into relationship, and let's enter more deeply into the places where we can really engage. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this gift of culture, this uh, beautiful array of things that people have created uh, that express what is meaningful to them, that express um, what we believe, and shows that we've been created in your image to, to be creative. Um, forgive us when we've run away, uh, escaped into safe little havens to ride out the dangerous uh, culture. And forgive us when we've done the opposite and we've engaged so much that we've forgotten what we're doing, um, who we are, what we believe. And so give us the courage to break out of safety zones, whether those safety zones are, are the huddle or kind of blending in. And uh, give us the insight in that process of engaging and interacting to recognize uh, where is your truth? Where is your beauty? How can we affirm it? How can we love it? How can we enjoy it? And then how can we speak and act and create truth into it? Uh, so thank you that your grace covers over all of the ways that, that we can fall off either side of, of wisdom. And um, thank you that your wisdom is greater than the world's and that moves us to really engage. Protect us from the dangers of safety and root us in the gospel. Give us courage to truly engage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we move into the second half of our service, the back half, this is a time of response all together. It's not just one piece. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's not multiple things. It is just one piece together of us having the opportunity to respond um, through worship and through many ways. So um, as we play music, we invite you to um, interact with that however you're comfortable, whether that's singing, whether that's being quiet, whether that's standing, sitting, however it is. We just want you to engage in some way with, uh, with the call that uh, Wes put out today to, uh, to not hold yourself back, not feel fenced in by the way the church operates and acts sometimes. Um, and one of the ways that we respond is, uh, is coming together and offering also. So if Warehouse is not your home, if this is not a place that you participate regularly, then this is not an obligation for you to, to give. But for those of us that, uh, that call this place home, that uh, want to make it tick by participating, um, we interact together through an offering. So join with us. All right, before I close and get us out of here, I'd love to hear if any first through fifth graders took me up on my challenge to count my words throughout. Okay, are you got, what, how old are you? All right, so how many times did I say muskox? 
All right. Um, I'll come back to you with the other one. You got it? How, how many? Eleven. That's better than the first service. Yes. Awesome. Okay, how about over here? How many times? Chameleon. Anybody? Anybody know? Yes. Nine. Musk ox are better, I guess. Okay, and how many times for honeybee? Do you know? Twelve. Ish. <laughs> okay. Now, anybody count the word culture? I don't think there's. Are there elementary students over here? Way back there, yes. How many times did I say culture? I didn't hear. Yo! I can't see or hear. A lot. Someone in the first service said 400. <laughs> How many? Sorry, I'm, I don't know if it's my hearing. Or, okay. All right. Wow. Okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> okay. Good. Thanks for listening. It's great to have you in the arena today. Why don't we all stand up? I'm going to send us out with the benediction. And um, I've chosen these words from 1 Corinthians 10. This is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And um, in this chapter, he's giving them instructions about how to engage the food culture in this city. So I think it's really appropriate to the theme for today. Receive these as God's word to you as you leave. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whether you watch movies or read books or whatever, do it all for the glory of God. Don't cause anyone to stumble, whether those in the church or those outside the church. Do not seek your own good, but the good of others, so that they may be saved. Go in grace.